Tonight we're in chapter 65 of Isaiah, probably uh, one more week after tonight. So tonight we'll do chapter 65, and then next week we'll look at chapter 66 and the, the final chapter, the conclusion of Isaiah. And uh, tonight we're looking at chapter 65, which the, the vast majority of it is a hopeful encouraging forward-looking prophecy of what God is going to do for his people. But there are also in mixed in with that uh, forward-looking hope. There, are, there is some warning. There is some message of judgment for those who turn away from the Lord. And the reason why that's so important is because really all throughout Isaiah, Isaiah has wanted to make clear that if you are a descendant of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, that in and of itself does not make you ready for the kingdom of God in the end. That in itself does not prepare you for the new heavens and the new earth that he will describe in this chapter, chapter 65. So you need to have a change of heart in order to be a true child of God. So as Deuteronomy would describe it, not just an external circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart, a, a transformed heart and mind that identifies with God, with his words, with his people. And so he's going to describe in great detail and very beautiful language, this future glorious hope that we have as God's people. But he wants to make clear that not every single person is going to enjoy this glorious future hope but only those who are in fellowship and relationship with the Lord, those who are obeying him, who are, have faith in him. And so he's making a distinction in this chapter between those who are on the right path and those who are not. And those who are on the right path can expect to inherit that new heavens and new earth. And so this, is, this chapter does have some judgment, but also salvation and blessing. The first part of the chapter describes two paths and two destinies. Two paths and two destinies. This is in verses 1 through 16. In verse 1, he describes God's boundless kindness. God's boundless kindness. In verse 1, he says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. And most likely what Isaiah is referring back to here is probably the very beginning of Israel as a nation or as a people. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and God came to Abraham, right? Abraham wasn't really seeking for God. Abraham wasn't out looking for God. By all that we can tell from Genesis and from other records of it in the, the Pentateuch about the history of the Abrahamic peoples, Abraham came out of a pagan family. So his immediate ancestors were polytheistic, pagan gods, worshiper of the gods, small g. And so Abraham was not someone who was looking for God. God came to him. God found him. Uh, you could even say in a similar way that 
during their whole long time that they were in slavery in Egypt, after all those generations came and went, that God came and found them. God raised up a servant, a deliverer by the name of Moses, and God sent Moses to them. And so this is a really a description of God's grace, his boundless kindness to a people that did not deserve it. And then in verse 2 through verse 7 is described how those people who received the grace of God repaid God, and they repaid him with rebellion. So God came to a people that weren't seeking him. He found them. He showed his grace and kindness to them. And what did they do in response? They rebelled against him. They rebelled against him pretty much from the very start, didn't they? We've seen an exodus at Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain receiving instructions from God, and the people are down below committing idolatry. And that becomes kind of a pattern throughout their whole history as a nation. Persistent rebellion. And so Israel has a rebellion problem. Persistent rebellion. Verse 2 says, All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. Some of the same language that he uses of Israel way back in Exodus 32, right after the golden calf incident. He says, these are a hard-hearted, stubborn, obstinate people. And he says here all day long, kind of all the way throughout your history, I've been holding out my hand to a stubborn people. And they walk in ways that are not good. They pursue their own imaginations. Basically, that's the sin of Adam and Eve from the beginning, isn't it? We want to do what we want to do. God says, obey my word. But Adam and Eve were tempted to obey their own word, to become their own gods, to become their own determiner of what's right and wrong. And that's how we are today, still as sinners. We desire to do our own thing. We want to follow our own path. God says, you've been obstinate and stubborn. A people who continually provoke me to my very face offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. And this just refers to their their rampant idolatry throughout their history. So when it refers to provoking God to his face, it's, I think there could be a a subtle allusion here to to the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally, that means in my face. And, and here they're having other gods in front of God's face and they're openly sinning before him and provoking him to wrath. And these uh, mention of gardens and altars of brick, it's just a reference to all the various kinds of gods and, and different locations, different sacred sites. I, I use that sacred in quotation marks, sacred in, in the view of these false religions And they would offer sacrifices and worship at all these illegitimate places who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat. And so the first part of the verse may allude to the idea of maybe black magic or the dark arts, something like that, necromancy or um, consulting mediums being around graves and keeping vigil there. The last part of the verse is clearly in direct violation of the laws of God about what is clean and unclean to eat. So basically they're just openly defiant against God. 
who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. The idea there is that that the people, through their sin, through their rebellion, kept pushing God away. And to God, it became as irritating as smoke in the face. That's kind of the imagery I take from that is smoke in the eyes, smoke in the nose. It's, it's irritating. It's, it's something that you don't want to be in the, in the face of around. And it's a constant irritation and, and provoking of God. See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, meaning a holy, righteous God cannot be long-suffering forever. He is long-suffering. He is compassionate. He is, as he said in Exodus 34, slow to anger, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so he must pay it back to them. Both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord, Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. And this seems to be pointing forward, even beyond the discipline of the exile. That there's a warning here as as Isaiah wraps up his message, comes to the conclusion of his book. And he's many, many times pointed out that God's going to rescue you. God's going to bring you home. He's bringing you from Babylon back to Jerusalem. This may seem, this may be forward looking after that return from exile and just a strong warning, a strong rebuke that even though God has had mercy on you and brought you back home, that doesn't mean that you can continue to provoke him to his face. He will respond with his righteous indignation if you go on serving false gods and idols. And so Israel has a rebellion problem and has had a rebellion problem throughout their history. But God is kind and God is gracious. And God has always had a remnant that he has rescued. And you can see that theme running all the way through scripture of of God's holy wrath coming on sinful people, but even then his wrath is tempered and he shows mercy, he, was, he withholds judgment, he shows kindness to a remnant by grace, by mercy. Uh, you can see that with even with Adam and Eve. He could have put them to death on the spot, but he shows them mercy. He provides a sacrifice for them. He provides clothing for them to cover their nakedness and their shame. In, in Cain and Abel, you've got Cain who rises up and kills his brother. God brings in another seed, doesn't he, through Seth, who replaces Abel, through whom the godly line will come. You've got Noah, who the whole world is destroyed, but God preserves a remnant. You've got God preserves a remnant through Abraham and through his seed. And you see this pattern, this theme all the way throughout. And then we get to the time of the exile And much of Israel and Judah suffered the consequences of that, but there was a remnant that God rescued and he was going to bring back home to to Judah. So God has rescued a remnant as he often does. He preserved remnant, his servants, who will inherit his land. So the wicked will not inherit his land, his righteous remnant will. 
This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. So he uses this imagery of just a little bit that's left over. And that's the people, the remnant that he's bringing back home. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains, my chosen people will inherit them. And there will my servants live. So God, in essence, has cleansed the land of its idolatry. It's, he's cleansed the land of its rebellion, of ignoring God's Sabbaths, ignoring his word. And now he's going to bring back a righteous remnant that he has chosen. And he's going to bring them there. And by grace, they will be the ones who inherit the land. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. The area of Sharon was already a fertile place. And this is saying that God's going to make it even more fertile, even more blessing. The valley of Achor is a place that in scripture is most closely associated with the sin of Achan and the place where God uh, put him to death for his sin. And the Valley of Achor was not fertile. It was more of a dry, barren land. But here Isaiah says God's going to make that fertile. God's going to make that a luscious plain for his people. So a, a remnant. Those who rebel, God will repay them for what they deserve. But God is going to preserve a remnant and allow them to dwell in his land. And then Isaiah describes two kinds of people in verses 11 through 16. Two kinds of people. And there's a contrast running throughout this whole section. There are those who are destined for destruction, verses 11 and 12. There are those who forsake the Lord and they follow pagan idols, cults, and they are destined for destruction. Because he called and they did not answer. They chose to do what they wanted to do instead of what, of God, what God wanted them to do. So destined for destruction. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny. And there's probably an allusion here to false gods, to, to false worship. And that's why these two words are capitalized to kind of give that sense of this is not just fortune or destiny kind of in a generic sense, but this is like the worship of false gods and the, the pagan religion that went along with that worship of those false gods. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible puts it this way. It says for this verse, they were not interested in what a biblical prophet might have to say to them about their moral behavior. They wanted only to know the future so they could have some illusion of control over their lives. But the Lord has a destiny for them, which is the sword or judgment. And so the idea here of fortune and destiny is the idea of, of pursuing false gods, but for the sake of divining their own future so they can have some control over it. And that was common among these pagan religions is the idea of manipulating the gods, of trying to, to divine the gods and find out what's going to happen. And in that way, to have some, some kind of control over them and over their own lives. But that's not the proper worship of the Lord. 
So he says, for those of you who forsake my ways and and go after these false ways, there's going to be destruction. I will destine you for the sword and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. That just speaks to the the hard heartedness, the, the obstinacy of rebellious Israel. So there are those who are destined for destruction, but there are also those who are destined for joy. And they're contrasted with those who are destined for destruction. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. So here's that clear contrast. Those who follow the Lord, they're going to have blessing. Those who don't follow the Lord, they're going to have destruction, calamity. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. It's interesting, isn't it, that that those who pursue their own desires, pursue their own allegiance to the flesh, they think they're doing it for joy, for their own joy. But the irony is, is that it really doesn't bring any true satisfaction in the present. And it's going to completely deprive them of joy for all eternity. Because here it says, you're going to cry from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants, he will give another name. And so the idea there of the first part is those who followed the Lord, or I'm sorry, those who rejected the Lord and followed their own ways, their names will be cursed because that is their destiny. But those who follow the Lord, he will receive his name. They will receive his name on them and enjoy the blessings that he has for them. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. And right there you can kind of see a glimpse of where he's about to turn next. Because here he's talking about the land. And in the land, there's going to be no more allegiance to false gods. No more troubles. All those troubles, those previous troubles are going to be forgotten. They're in the past. Because the very next thing he turns to is something new. A new heavens and a new earth. And so through the rest of the chapter, he describes this new thing. That God is going to do all things new. Specifically, a new creation. A new creation. Verse 17, he says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. And so the Lord describes a completely new creation. This passage is picked up again in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, John sees it as the final climax of everything. That God will create a new heavens and a new earth. That, that all of God's people, death and, and Hades and Satan and unbelievers, they will all already have been cast into the lake of fire. 
And then all that will remain is a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. No more, tar- no more sorrows, no more tears, no more crying, no more death. That's the way that John uses uh, this language from Isaiah. So the, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. There's a, a debate in, among Christians and Christian theologians about how this new heavens and new earth will come about. Some believe that this present order will, will be completely destroyed. In the sense of like Peter says, when he says the elements will melt with fervent heat. So some believe that this current order, arrangement of things will be completely destroyed and God will start over from scratch. Other theologians believe that uh, there are other scriptures that seem to point to not a complete destruction of everything that God made, but a renewal of the present order so that this world becomes essentially brand new because it will be completely renovated, completely taken out all of the evil elements of it. All the curse will be no more and it will be a brand new beginning. And so there's, there's a debate about that. Uh, Isaiah doesn't really help us. He just kind of says there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. But the point that he's making is that this is what God's people have to look forward to. This is that, this is that blessing, that, that great climactic blessing that God's people have to look forward to. So a new creation and a new city. Verses 18, the last part of verse 18 and on into verse 20 describe a new city, the new Jerusalem. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. So that's the kind of language that that John picks up, isn't it, in Revelation? No more crying, no more sorrow. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Now, this verse in particular brings up kind of a debate about what Isaiah is describing here. Again, a debate between Christians and Christian theologians about what time period Isaiah is describing. Some would see Isaiah describing here what would be called the premillennial kingdom of Christ, a thousand-year reign of Christ before the ultimate new heavens and new earth that John describes at the end in Revelation 21 and 22. And the reason they would say that is because there is, in this verse, the reference to death, that There is longevity, obviously, that people will live a very long time, but it still references the concept of death. And so some have wondered, can this be the eternal state? Can this really be the the last new heavens and new earth where there will be no more death and death has been conquered if this verse is referencing death? And so some have said what Isaiah is describing here is a premillennial kingdom, like, like the thousand year reign of Christ that's described in Revelation 20. That is before the great white throne judgment and then the eternal state of the new heavens and new earth. So some have said that's what John is describing here. Others have said, no, this is, this is the, the ultimate end, new heavens and new earth. 
But what we have in verse 20 is really poetic language where it says, basically it's, it's describing eternal longevity, but in these poetic ways of someone who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. And so in other words, it's making this comparison between a normal lifespan and an eternal lifespan, if you will, and using it in, these, in this poetic comparison. So that's another way that some understand it. Uh, because we do have to wrestle with the fact that Isaiah does call it a new heavens and new earth here. And John does the same thing in Revelation 21 and 22, using the same language of Isaiah of the eternal state. And so there's, a, there's kind of a back and forth on that here with, between Isaiah and Revelation. So a new city, a new society, verses 21 through 25. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Again, poetic language, right? So how long does a tree live? A tree can live a very long time, right? Go, go visit some of the trees in Northern California, you know, hundreds of years old. And so that's kind of the imagery here is my people, again, longevity, long life compared to the long life of a tree. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. The idea of verse 22 is no more frustration, no more toil and labor, and then it all coming to nothing because someone else comes in and takes it from you or a storm wipes it out. It's just you, you will enjoy the work of your hands. So it seems to be like a reversal of the thorns and the thistles of Genesis 3. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. Which describes the nearness of the Lord, doesn't it? that the way that John describes it in Revelation, God will be with his people. He will dwell with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. This describes the, the nearness of God, that he's right there, ready to help, ready to answer. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Again, there's debate. Is this so obviously with what Isaiah is describing, there is some pullback of the curse, right? So no more toil and frustration. When you work, you're going to enjoy the late, the fruits of that. And that's how God designed it from the beginning. Work is not because of sin, right? You all know that some people would might think, oh, we have to work because Adam and Eve sinned. No. Nope. God gave work to Adam, right, before the fall. Go and tend the garden, cultivate the garden, work it and keep it. But it would have been joyful. It would have been fulfilling. It would have been satisfying. And it would have been effective in that whenever Adam worked, it would have been successful. And he would enjoy the fruit of his hands before the curse. After the curse, now he works, but he has to work harder. He has to work against the grain. He has to work against uh, thorns and thistles and, and disappointments. And so, but work is 
God-given before the fall. So even in this new heavens and new earth, there's going to be work, but no more toil, frustration. This language of violent animals now dwelling in safety. And by the way, this is reminiscent all the way back to Isaiah 11, who says very similar language about violent animals dwelling together in unity. Again, it, it, it suggests a pullback of the curse. And very interesting, isn't it, that verse 25 says that dust will be the serpent's food. That's reminiscent of Genesis 3.15, isn't it? The very original condemnation of the serpent, where God said to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and you will crush his heel, but he will crush your head. And on the belly of your on your belly will you walk all the days of your life, and dust shall be your food. Genesis three fifteen and sixteen. And so there's an allusion here to that. So again, is this the the last final putting away of the curse? If so, that would suggest no more death, right? Because a part of the curse on sin is death. So. There's, there's disagreement. You know, is this talking about a thousand year reign that is limited in time when a, maybe a partial lifting of the curse will transpire, but there will be still some death, some sin, but largely the reign of Christ. And then after that, a new heavens and new earth, or are we talking about a final end to all things and only perfection forevermore? My lean for myself is to see Isaiah and Revelation as being on the same page and both describing the final end of everything. So in, in, in other words, the, the last final ultimate kingdom of a new heavens and new earth where there's no more death, there's no more sorrow, there's no more crying, there's no more sin. That's my lean. But there are some who would say, no, this is talking about the millennial kingdom and there's, a, there's another eternal state after that.